Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you made last year, no matter how many degrees hang on your wall, no matter how big or small your home is, each and every one of us get the same 24 hours in each and every day. And I don't know about you, but it seems like more often than not, 24 hours is not enough. Uh, We live in a world that is rushed. We have tight schedules. We're always moving on to the next thing. We're always plugged in because we never want to miss the latest breaking news. There's always something else to do, something to watch or see or read, another box on the to-do list that hasn't been checked. And that is the reality of our world today and the reality for many of us. But, But it's interesting that it was not always assumed that things were going to be this way. Back in 1967, there was a Senate subcommittee that met to discuss retirement. And during their meeting, they heard testimony from a professor of economics from Duke University who suggested it would be possible that with advances in technology, this is a real quote on the screen, we could have by 1985, for example, a work week of 22 hours, or if we chose instead, we could have a work year of 27 weeks, or we could have a retirement age of approximately 38 years. That's a real quote that was really spoken before members of the Senate in 1967. You can look it up online yourself, assuming you live a glamorous life like I do and spend time digging through Senate subcommittee reports from the late 1960s. There was a real thought that our greatest challenge going forward into the modern world was going to be that there was going to be so much leisure available that we wouldn't even know what to do with all of the time that we were going to have. These words were said in 1967, envisioning what the world would be like in 1985. And given that we're a little bit past that at this point, I thought we'd take a quick informal poll and just ask if anyone by a show of hands has a full-time job that requires 22 hours of work a week, or maybe a full-time job where you only have to work 27 weeks a year, or you've been working full-time and you're going to be able to retire at the age of 38. Is that anyone's... If that is you, maybe don't put your hand up because someone will throw something at you, maybe, actually. We have more to do than our time allows. And so we treat it as this precious resource. There are far more opportunities to spend time than there is time itself. Yet for all the opportunities we have to spend our time, the best way we will find for considering how to spend it will be to think about it from the standpoint of how to use it for the glory of God. We've been in a sermon series for the past few weeks called You Are Not Your Own. We've been looking at this idea of belonging. Because our world would say you belong to yourself. You you are to find your own meaning for yourself. You are your own, and therefore it's all up to you to make a life that's significant for you. But what we've been suggesting over this series is that, in fact, we are not our own. That the message of Jesus says that we belong to God first and foremost. And when we hand over every part of who we are to him, We will find true life. And if what we've been considering over the past few weeks is true, that we do not belong to ourselves and neither does our money or our work or our marriages, then that also applies to our time as well. 
because we might look at each week as something that holds 168 hours in it, and so I have to slice this pie up however I want. I need sleep here and work there and whatever else it might be, and within that I can allot two, three, or four hours a week to religious things, reading the Bible, going to church, whatever it might be, just like how I have to allot a few hours a week to a date night or running the kids to activities or whatever it is, but the message of Jesus does not come to us and ask to be one more thing to fit in with everything else. It is not one routine that we have in the midst of all of our other routines. It is the foundation of everything we do and everything that we are, and that should be reflected in our time as well. Following Jesus is not one thing to fit in. It is something we seek first and foremost so that our life with God can run through everything that we do. Because when we look at our calendar, we can despair at how busy we are. We can look forward to a season that's going to be less busy. We can feel guilty. We're not doing enough. We're not spending our time in the right way. Or we can engage with the God who loves us and who rules over all things and who created us and placed us where we are for his glory. Because no matter how you spend your time, that right there is my hope for you. God gives us each moment to use for him. He created us. He sustains every breath we take. And so no matter what we do or how we spend our time, we should do it for the glory of God. And I'm fully aware that this is a little bit of an ironic time of year to be preaching a sermon on how to spend our time. Because this is a busy time of year for each and every one of us. Uh, July is a month where basically the only time Isaac and I are both in this building at the same time is a Sunday morning. And the rest of the month, one of us is at camp or off doing something else. In the past two weeks or so alone, I've had about five or six meetings that I've tried to schedule, and I'm pretty sure none of them are going to happen before the end of August because everyone is running in so many different directions. And with all of that being the case, I would be a hypocrite to stand up here and just tell you to be less busy. But I'd rather try to help us all as a, as a family of people following Jesus together try to sort through what it looks like to make Jesus the foundation of our time, the foundation of everything that we do, so that the God who sustains us will be glorified in us. So I want to look at a part of the passage we read to open our worship this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul presents us with two different ways to live in this passage. You might have noticed as we were reading it, he presents us with the option of living uh, wisely or living unwisely. And he calls us to give up being unwise so that we can become wise. And, and wisdom, you probably know this or have experienced that wisdom is not intelligence, or at least it's not completely intelligence. Uh, my favorite definition of wisdom comes from one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, who says that wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever actual conditions we find ourselves. It's the art of living skillfully. It's not something to be found by reading a textbook, although reading textbooks can help towards the end of gaining wisdom. It's something that is lived out. It's something that's gained by experience. It is truth applied to real life. Not black and white answers, but living well in the gray areas of life in light of the truths that we know. That's the sort of life the gospel calls us to cultivate. And in this letter of Ephesians, Paul has expounded what the gospel is and how and is now teaching what it means in our everyday lives. And as he begins to make his way through this, and he's eventually going to get to the passage we looked at last week where he's talking about what it looks like in marriage, he starts here by offering this overarching heading of living wisely 
as opposed to unwisely. He doesn't speak in the realm of hypotheticals. He talks about our current world that often feels rushed and scattered and says that the gospel calls us to wisdom so that our time might be used for the glory of God. Let me read our text for us. Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17. He says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. There's a couple of phrases in the original language of this passage that get lost in translation a little bit. And the first one comes in verse 15 because Paul literally says, Watch carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Multiple times throughout this letter of Ephesians, Paul will describe life with Jesus as a walk. And I find that interesting because if you you actually reflect on what walking is, it's something that is gradual. It's something that we just do day after day. It's something that doesn't get us anywhere fast, but it's how Paul describes following Jesus. Walking isn't practical, at least over long distances. I mean, if you've If you ever look at the GPS on your phone, I always find it interesting that when you're looking up the best route to get from one place or another, one of the options it gives you is walking, as if, like, I'm going to look and say, well, it's a four-hour drive, or if I want to save the gas money, I can walk for a week. Maybe that'll, maybe that's a better option. I don't know if anyone's ever actually done that or not. Because walking just isn't practical a lot of times. And yet that's the metaphor Paul uses to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, there were, it's not just that Paul lived in, a long time ago, and that was the only way he knew how to get around. I mean, there's more efficient ways to travel, even as Paul's writing this letter, and yet he doesn't say that following Jesus is like riding in a horse-drawn chariot. He doesn't say following Jesus is like getting on a ship. He says it's like walking, one foot after another, each and every day, until you reach the destination as you progress further and further down this path of wisdom. And in our world that's so rushed, I think that image is one we should come back to. Just like how I'm sure you are like me and you would never want to take a week to walk somewhere when it would take you just a few hours to drive there. Uh, There are often times when we approach following Jesus where we want the most efficient option and Jesus calls us to walk. He doesn't offer us a fast pass to being Christ-like. He says, put one foot after another and grow in the wisdom of Christ sit in his teaching, and apply it every day. And as slow as and efficient as that may sound, Paul tells us that walking with Jesus brings transformation. There in verse, 15, verse 16, excuse me, the NIV we read from says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, which is not a bad translation, but I, I love in the original language it literally says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeem the time. Because the days are evil. That is how Paul clarifies what, the, what it looks like to walk in wisdom. That, and this is the point where there's a part of me that wishes this was a class instead of a sermon and we would just pause and we'd all chew on that phrase, redeem the time for a while, because I don't think I've gotten to the bottom of it yet, because it is a powerful image. I mean, our world tends to operate from the perspective that time is money. Speak of time that can be spent or wasted. And Paul is thinking in similar terms when he calls us to actually redeem our time. To buy it back in light of the world we live in. I mean, when you get a kid's meal at Culver's, in case you don't know this yet, I'm about to change your life. When you get a kid's meal at Culver's, you 
get those little coupons that can be redeemed for a scoop of frozen custard and you get free dessert. And Paul tells the Ephesians something similar. That's how to view your time. Every day, every season of life, it is something to be redeemed, to be bought back out of the evil of this world and for the glory of God. Our time is not something to use just for your own preferences, your own leisure. No, just like every part of us, it is something to be redeemed. Just as Jesus has redeemed us. It's something the redemption of the gospel is to invade so that we might be whole in Christ. And Paul gives us that as the first half of that statement because of the second half, which is that the days are evil. Paul's fully aware of the world that he and the Ephesians are a part of as he writes this. The city of Ephesus was famous in the ancient world for being the home of the goddess Artemis. Here in just a few weeks, the adult Sunday school class that meets in this room during our Sunday school hour will get to Acts chapter 19, where Paul is in Ephesus preaching the gospel. And Paul causes a riot for preaching the gospel because silversmiths in the city realize that if everyone starts believing in Jesus, they're not going to have a market anymore for these idols of Artemis and, the, and other gods that they always make out of silver. And so they say, well, we better start a riot and run Paul out of town to protect our business. As Paul's writing this letter, there's a temple to the goddess Artemis in the city of Ephesus that's roughly half the size of a city block. You might know it was called one of the wonders of the ancient world. One scholar says that the heart, body, and soul of the city of Ephesus was wrapped around worship of the goddess Artemis. That was at the center of the world that the people reading this letter that Paul is writing live in. And not only that, you have temples built around this time throughout the city that are built to worship the emperor of Rome. They are built to worship the leader of the nation as if he is a god in the flesh, offering sacrifices to him and things like that. That's the world that the Ephesians are living in. Those are the places they are walking past as they're going out to the fields in the morning and they're coming home from work at night. And that's the world that Paul writes to them and he tells them to redeem the time. And it's a world that might not feel all that different from our own. And when we're faced with that reality, it might be easy to decide that, well, the best way to honor God, the best way to give glory to Jesus is just to take a step back. And I understand that. It might feel like, well, I, just, I just need to get away from this. We just need to hunker down. Let's just circle the wagons and then everything will be okay. Let everything else fall apart. But we are going to protect ourselves and be okay. We might look at the world around us. We might look to the future like one writer who said that the children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. There's more to the quote, if David will move me along. There we go. Children are now tyrants not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. And you might hear that and think, boy, that sounds a little harsh. But it seems like our world, and just in case it does, you can see that quote comes from the Greek philosopher Socrates. Socrates died 400 years before Jesus was born. So maybe the world hasn't changed all that much. And in the midst of a world like that, in Paul's day or in ours, where things are broken, where things we worry, there are things around us that we worry might lead to the downfall of our livelihood, our family, our city, our nation, our church, or something else, Paul can understand where we're coming from. 
He lived in a similar world, and yet his answer to us is not to head for the hills. He calls us to be faithful where we are. And the message of the gospel, as Paul writes, Ephesians and today, calls us to redeem the time. When we are in a job we don't enjoy, we redeem the time. When we have a maxed out schedule, we redeem the time. When the kids won't sleep through the night, we redeem the time. No matter what fills our days, no matter how near or far we might feel from the presence of God in any given moment, the gospel says Jesus died and rose from the dead, which means God is present with you always. He is in through before and after everything we do, every appointment, game, and commitment we have. And so we walk in the wisdom of Jesus each day. We redeem the time so that God might be glorified in us as we walk in the wisdom he gives us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And instead of a life that is unwise or foolish, a life lived independently of God, Paul says in verse 17, to understand the will of the Lord. Instead of a life that says, we are our own, I get to do what I want, it's up to me to find meaning for myself, Jesus calls us to seek the will of the Lord. And that might sound mystical or difficult to do when you hear it at first glance. I think there are times, at least in my own experience in life, when we think about the will of God as if it's a secret code that we have to figure out. As if, like, when we, when we get to a big decision, we're trying to figure out where we work or where we should go to college or who we should marry or something like that, that it's like God sets ten options before us, and nine of them are wrong and one of them is right, and he won't tell us the answer. And so then it's a game where we have to sort out which one is right. There are, like, codes in the stars or whatever it might be that we have to figure out what the will of the Lord is, and we have to get this decision right because if we get it wrong and we don't go to the college that God's will was for us to go to, it is going to ruin the next 50 years of our lives. Now, God obviously cares about the big decisions of our lives, and he wants us to think through what is the best way to honor him, what his will is for us in the big and small decisions of life. But the result of that line of thinking, it seems, is to lead to fear that, and anxiety and panic of, oh, geez, I have to get this right or I'm going to make a mess of everything. And instead, God desires us to walk with him. Obviously, there are some decisions we could make in life that would directly contradict his will for us that would lead us into sin or lead others into sin, but there is much more freedom in the will of the Lord than like trying to get through a path in a dark forest and if you make one wrong turn, you're going to be lost forever. The will of the Lord is that we would walk with him no matter where a specific path takes us. And knowing the will of the Lord comes through seeking the presence of God here and now. It comes through knowing that God goes before you knowing that God is already at work and asking him how you can be a part of what he's doing. Now, that doesn't give us license to say, well, then I get to do whatever I want and God is required to fix any mistakes that I make. But it means that no matter what we do or where we go, when we humble ourselves before God and ask him to make his will known to us, he will lead us forward through his word, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, through the community of people he puts around us. And that is what it looks like to know the will of the Lord and walk in it each and every day as we walk in wisdom and redeem the time. We have that option before us, no matter what we do day in and day out, to walk in wisdom, to redeem the time, to seek the will of the Lord so that God may be glorified in us. Our time is like a jar that's going to be filled. It's not a matter of whether or not you are going to use up all the time that you have. 
It's not a matter of whether or not it will be filled. If nothing else, we'll spend our time sitting around thinking about how we should be spending our time until we don't have any time left to spend. So we don't ask whether or not we will fill our time. We ask if we are filling our time with the right things. So as we consider what it looks like to redeem the time by walking in wisdom, I want to do something I, I wouldn't normally do and just try to offer three takeaways that might be helpful for us to do just that. These are not the only ways to respond to this passage of scripture, and it's not something everyone's required to do, but as I think about what this means for, for me and for us in our time and place as a community together, these are things that I've kept coming back to that I think might be helpful for us to consider how we can use our time for the glory of God. And the first thing is to worship well. I think there's a lot we could learn from the beginning of Acts chapter 6. In case you don't know, in Acts chapter 6, the early church is growing, and as a part of their growth, they are providing food for the widows within the church, but a problem starts to arise because the widows that are of a a Greek background are not getting as much food or not getting served as regularly as the widows within the church that are from a Hebrew background. And this starts to cause a stir. And the problem comes to the 12 apostles, the leaders of the church. And the first thing they say in Acts 6-2 is it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now that does not mean that the 12 apostles don't care about widows and they're just okay to let them go starve to death. The story continues, and they work with the rest of the church to put a solution in place, but they begin by saying that this issue cannot take precedence over the ministry of the Word of God. It's not that caring for widows is a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing, but it is not the best thing. And so often, at least in my own life, I don't know about you, but, but the choice for me is not, am I going to do a good thing or a bad thing? It's, am I going to do a good thing or am I going to do the best thing? Because I can fill my days with lots of good things and never get to the best thing. And walking in wisdom, redeeming the time, it starts with focusing on the best things and worship well and allowing everything else to flow out of that. Isaac and I were talking about this this week, and he gave me a prop to use that I kind of forgot where I left for a second until right now uh, to help get at this. And he keeps this jar in his office to remind him of this exact lesson. And I'll just read what the jar says here. It says, in the jar, there are 12 walnuts and one cup of rice. The walnuts represent the things that God wants us to do. The rice represents the things that we want to do. If we pour the rice in first, the walnuts will never fit. But if we put the walnuts in first and then pour in the rice, the rice will fill in all the spaces and everything will fit. Likewise, if we put the things that we want to do first in our lives, there will not be room enough for the things that God wants us to do. But if we put God first in our lives, we will have room for all the things that he wants us to do as well as space for all the many things we want to do. We all have good things in our lives. And I'm not here to make you feel bad for having good things in your lives, for having things a part of your day that you enjoy but we can fill the jars of our days with rice and crowd out the walnuts. So I'm not saying you can't go on vacation, you can't go to the lake this summer, you can't let your kids play sports, but I want us to, what I want to say to all of us is no matter what we do or where we go, it should begin by worshiping well so that we have a firm foundation 
So no matter how we spend our time, God is glorified in us. I don't say that because I just think you need to be in church more often, although I think worshiping God well includes going to church often and worshiping with other believers. But at the end of the day, I want you to draw near to Jesus and don't want you to allow the good things of life to crowd that out. So worship well so that you might walk in wisdom and redeem your time. Second, I think we can be present. My guess is not all of us have read the letter of 2 John lately, and I'm not saying that I have necessarily, but the, last, or the next to last verse of the letter of 2 John I think is a really powerful verse. In 2 John 12, John writes, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. John is writing to a church that he cares about, a church that's dealing with real problems. It's a short letter, but he addresses the problems they're dealing with. He tries to encourage them to continue in their walk with Jesus. And then he gets to the end and he says, well, there's more I could say, but I'll wait until we see each other in person. Now, I know I'm being selfish as I say this, but there's a real part of me that wishes John had kept writing. I mean, John was one of the 12 disciples. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. He was there when Jesus died on the cross. He saw the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday. What are you talking about, John? You should keep writing. How are people 2,000 years from now going to know what you think if you don't keep writing? Surely it's a hassle to, to get up and travel and pack and do all of that. Can't you just keep writing this letter and have someone else deliver it and then you can move on to the next thing and John says no whatever he has to say it needs to be said in person and in our world so much is done as a distance I think we would do well to learn from the apostle John and be present with those in front of us now again I'm not ranting or calling anyone out this is not my rant of spend less time on your phone or stop watching church online because this isn't about my opinions and that would not be helpful for any of us but as I look at the way Jesus moved in the world I see a priority of physical presence with others and so maybe it's worth looking at our own habits to see if we can be more present in the physical world with the people around us so that we can redeem the time so that they might know the love of the God who has drawn near to us and been present with us in Jesus. And lastly, find space to rest. Jesus gets himself in trouble multiple times with the religious leaders of his day for violating their rules around the Sabbath. And one of the first times this happens is in Mark chapter 2. And we can read a passage like that and in our world that celebrates a good work ethic and, and valorizes people that work 60, 80 hours a week or whatever it might be. We might read this and think, well, Jesus is telling us we're free. We don't ever have to worry about taking time off. But it's not that Jesus is against rest. He's against using rules to keep people from God. When he's being confronted in one of these ways in Mark chapter 2 and verses 27 and 28, Jesus responds to the criticism and says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus' point is that rest is a gift. It's not a list of rules to carry out each week. It is a gift from God to restore our souls. Jesus calls us to rest. Not to be slothful, but as a reminder that he's the one ruling over the world, not us. 
And in our world that is addicted to overwork, it might not be a bad thing for us to find rest. And I'm not just talking about taking an extra week of vacation. I'm not just talking about blocking off a Saturday and watching television all day. But finding times and places and people that will refresh your soul because God did not create you to be an energizer bunny that runs 24-7. He created you with a need to rest. And part of redeeming our time and walking in wisdom comes through resting well so God can use us for his glory. And again, none of this is required homework. I'm not telling you all this because I've got everything figured out and I want you to follow my example. I tell you this because I want for myself and for you and for our church to walk in wisdom, to redeem our time so that God may be glorified in us as we seek his will. And maybe these are some steps to help us do that. Because above all else, every breath we have ever taken and ever will take is a gift from the God who created us and loves us. He sent his son to die on the cross in our place so that we can have relationship with him. So as we respond to that, we offer him every moment that we have so that he might be glorified through us. So beyond doing any homework, my call is to give God every moment that you have because it will not be wasted. Let's pray. God, we thank you that when we were far away from you, Jesus came near to take on our limitations of what it means to be human, to get tired and sweaty and weary and sad and everything else so that we might be redeemed into life with you. And so, God, we ask for your wisdom to help us walk in the way of Jesus not running out ahead of where you call us, not wandering off in whatever path we think is best, but to simply walk one foot after another wherever you lead us. For those of us that are unsure of what those next steps are, God, we ask for your clarity and your presence with us. For those of us that are weary, who feel like the next step is impossible, God, would you strengthen us through your presence. God, for each and every one of us, help us know who you are, how you are at work in and around us, and help us respond appropriately. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.